0: Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with Tina Spring. And today, we decided that we would tackle a somewhat controversial subject, and that is adopting dogs From what would be described as less than ideal situations. I think both of us had had experience dealing with dogs whose owners have adopted them from a hoarding situation or perhaps from a puppy mill situation. Here in Ohio, we have some puppy mills up in Knox County. And um, I would know when people would tell me, Oh, I got my dog in Berlin, I knew exactly what we were going to be dealing with, which was a dog that generally had very limited human contact, usually kept in a barn, Um, contact with other dogs, but no socialization as a puppy, and coming from a situation that would make it extraordinarily difficult for this dog to be successful in an ordinary home. And the same thing can happen in a hoarding situation where dogs don't get a lot of individual attention because you're talking about, I don't know, lots and lots of dogs, 30, 40 dogs in a small area. So we wanted to talk about some of the special needs that these dogs may have, some of the expectations that you may want to have of these dogs, and the expectations you perhaps maybe shouldn't have of these dogs, and some questions you might want to ask yourself before you adopt one of these dogs. Surprisingly, a lot of these dogs tend to be small dogs. At least in my area, they tend to be smaller dogs. Maybe not so much in Georgia, but it seems as though the dogs that I have had to deal with that have come from hoarding situations or from puppy mills tend to be um, 35 pounds or less. I haven't, although that's not always true. That's not always true. I've had some larger dogs, so but they've all had some common issues. Basically, A lot of them are much more comfortable. They're not comfortable inside because they've never lived inside a house, so it's very unusual for them. Um, If they are inside, they tend to like dark corners or maybe crates. Um, They tend to like to be outside. Going for walks tends to be something that they're comfortable with or being in the yard because that's the one thing that they're perhaps used to. And they tend to do well perhaps with, or they can do well with other dogs, not as much with people. But anyway, turning it over to you Tina. I have now given a somewhat sloppy introduction, but here you go.
0: So I I think sometimes what I see often is families who are incredibly well-meaning. They have a tr- they have a dog-shaped hole in their heart and absolutely, they're super absolutely. empathetic and compassionate and they find this dog with a story that tugs on their heartstrings and and to a certain extent i think we're all a little naive in that myself included to to think to ourselves well with enough love and care um we'll be able to to overcome everything anything uh and that's often just not the case so um i think sometimes when Families are looking at adoptable dogs and the, the sob story uh, is horrific. The dog came out of a hoarding situation or the dog was born in the wild or the dog has, you know, was significantly under socialized in the past or has separation anxiety or whatever it is, whatever the, the list is. Uh, they, they think that it's um that they're going to be the magic that fixes it, and sometimes no amount of magic truly fixes it. So sometimes I'm saying to families, if if it never gets any better than it is right now, are we going to maintain this dog for the next 12 14 years? Because that sometimes is the first question right should the dog go back from whence it came and to a certain extent i'm going to make some rescue mad i'm sure but i think until rescues and shelters are forced to deal with returns of dogs that aren't healthy and adoptable right they're not ready to go into a family they will keep placing dogs that are not ready to go into a family and that becomes really dangerous for dogs and people. Right. And so a well-meaning rescue that, that pulls dogs from a hoarding situation should in theory, understand that there's a lot of rehab that needs to be done before that dog is ready for the average household. Um, and sometimes I think the dogs don't necessarily get that care, that that work is outsourced to that foster or that adoptive family, and sometimes unfairly to to both the dog and the family. No, I agree completely.
1: One of the things that that I think rescues or humane societies, they want desperately to get dogs out of undesirable circumstances. and I appreciate that a lot. But the problem is, is that does not necessarily just because you remove the dog from the bad situation does not mean that the dog is ready to be put into a good situation. And um, I remember with um, one client I had, she had, I think it was three Bernese mountain dogs. And she was volunteering at a local shelter, and they got in a burner in the morning. And, like, at nine a m, and they let her take it home at noon. And she called me because it was a disaster. and i was I was very annoyed with the shelter because they hadn't done they hadn't even vetted, I mean, like, had a veterinarian take a look at the dog, much less, any kind of behavior evaluation to see whether or not this dog would be appropriate for adoption to anyone. They kind of thought, well, she knows burners, so she should do fine. And it wasn't fine. And it was an unmitigated disaster. And uh, the dog had to go back to the shelter. And of course, this whole back and forth being in a home and then out of a home, this just exacerbates many of the problems that dogs have. The more you rehome them, the more you are setting them back. And so I do understand that oftentimes there are limited resources that these, these places have and that they want to get these dogs into their forever homes. But I think that they... Forget that the forever home is only going to work if the dog is ready to be adopted and that you are adopting it to a family who clearly understands the challenges that this dog is meeting. One of the other things I would say that's really hard for shelters is they're not getting dogs that are easily adoptable for families who have never owned a dog before. So many times I think the dogs that come into shelters are difficult dogs. They come from bad breeding situations. Maybe they come from... um, out of the, the drug world, um, and they're not, they're not your average golden retriever puppy that's just you know available for adoption. And so they adopt difficult or challenging dogs to families who are not prepared for a difficult or challenging dog. And under, I kind of understand all sides,
0: but it leads to a lot of heartbreak across the board. I would agree. Right. And so it, it ends up being, we didn't adopt a dog. We adopted like a big renovation project that's potentially going to go over budget and not really end up being awesome. Uh, And so this is one of the reasons I really love the safer assessment in the meet your match program through uh, ASPCA Pro. I really wish shelters would do and rescues uh, would do temperament testing and evaluations of the animals in front of them and assess. Uh, I'm not. By the way, Julie and I are not saying that that these dogs are dogs that should just lose their lives. Like that's not the case. It's that if a rescue or a shelter is going to get involved with these massive cases puppy mills, hoarding situations, feral situations, things like that, uh, especially here in the States, it's not enough to just find a home for that dog. The, the dogs really need to be evaluated, and in many cases, a therapeutic foster home that is preparing the dog for the world um, really needs to be utilized, much like it's utilized in the racing greyhound world. Like, very rarely does someone get a dog from the track. Like, it's unheard of that you would get a dog from the track and immediately move it into a home with children and cats, right? That we know that that will end really badly. And so, the Racing Greyhound Rescues have done a fantastic job for the most part, rehabilitating these dogs and assessing what what situations are going to be suitable and appropriate for that dog and the heavy lifting of teaching the dog that they can't just eliminate anywhere and chew on anything and understanding what doors and stairs and other breeds of dog are. All of that work is done ahead of time so that when a placement happens, they're really able to advocate for the dog and for the family. So if the family has cats, the rescue is not going to ask them to live with a dog who was successful on track and is going to chase their cat right that that would be awful so in many cases i think it this heavy duty work is being outsourced and it's super it can be pretty dangerous it it will absolutely turn people off to rescues and shelters which is heartbreaking to me right like here are here are these organizations that for the most part do a phenomenal job um and so that's why i wanted to talk about this one i want to talk about it from the receiving end the family end where you know they have a dog who maybe is incredibly difficult to manage and isn't really suited to live with a family but that also is going to sour this very important work that rescues and shelters do right
1: and, what i was going to say is is i just remember one family that um they saw the dog on the shelter list and they went and they, they adopted the dog. And they were not told any of the difficulties that this dog had. And I can't remember in particular what it was, but it was stuff that came out pretty quickly. And they just found that with a family of three kids and a dog, I think this dog would, would, would run and would, uh, you know, just couldn't be anyway. They were having some real problems with this dog, and it just was not going to work with their family. They didn't have the time or the bandwidth or the experience. This was a dog that really needed some special handling. So we wrote up a report about this dog and the issues we were seeing and what we thought would be beneficial before they were to readopt send this dog out again. The kind of issues that this dog needed to work on. They took it back to the shelter. She gave them the papers, and they said, okay, thank you very much. We'll take this in consideration. Four hours later, the dog was up for adoption again on their website. And she said, she said, I can't do this. She said, I will never adopt a dog again. And that just broke my heart. Um, I just We had taken so much time and attention to try and point out to them the issues we thought this dog had and how we thought they could be taken care of, but this was not the family to do it. And yet they put the dog right up for adoption without recognizing any kind of situation. And I just felt so bad for this family because she, she she just started crying. She said, I thought I was doing the right thing. And apparently it doesn't matter if I do the right thing. And my heart just broke for her. So I think that, um, but I also understand the shelter feeling like, um, you know, we need to get this. We need to get our dogs adopted. We need to get them out. So. I think that they have perhaps the, 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 the matching of the owner, especially first time owners, they need to be, I think, especially careful with first time owners because you want them to come back in 10 years and get another dog. And, uh, it's, um, it's, it's a rough situation and there are no particularly easy answers, but there are
0: answers to the problem. I agree. So at a time in the universe when I see a lot of families that are just completely overwhelmed, right? They're overscheduled, they're overwhelmed, but they do really want to share their life with the dog. These tend to be more and more of the dogs that they're getting. And the one thing the family doesn't have is a bunch of time, which is what the dog is likely to require. Right? So Yes, I want these most at-risk dogs to get resources, but I really think we need to find a way to understand that some rehabilitation needs to happen before a full adoption happens, right? And that families really, it's not enough to say, well, this dog came from a hoarding situation or this dog came from a... this dog was relinquished because of separation anxiety, or this dog was is a feral dog. It was born in the wild. I think a lot of times people who are in the industry understand what those things mean and families don't understand what we mean. So it to be fair, I would say, if I go and talk to the shelter worker who handled that adoption, they're like, well, I told them. Like they knew what they were getting into. I told them the dog came from a hoarding situation. I don't think the average human being understands what that's really, truly about. What what that looks like from a dog's perspective and the incredible damage that can be done, how traumatic that is. You know,
1: one of the things we might want to talk about is how that trauma may come out in a dog. So that if a dog is from a hoarding situation, um, yes, it's very traumatic. What are we likely to be, what kind of behaviors are we going to see manifested from a dog that comes from a hoarding situation or puppy mill?
0: Okay. I so think you, you are, may, you may find resource guarding of food. You may also have a dog who's very difficult to get to eat because their stress level is so high that they, they can't eat. Um, Often they're dogs that when you attempt to put a leash on them, it's like you've roped a tornado. Uh, If they get loose from your home or your yard, it is often exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to catch them. They may not like touching. They may not be affiliative with people. So not trusting of human beings and not really understanding the magical relationship that The dog can have with humans. Often these are dogs who are one of two ways. Either they are far more socially comfortable with other dogs, other times they absolutely are terrified of other dogs because the situations can be that it was spectacularly dangerous for that dog. Uh, You may, I think I said this already, but you may find house training to be particularly challenging. You may find that you have a dog who will scale anything to get food and to get in cupboards, um, indiscriminate chewing, it it can really be pretty frantically overwhelming. A dog who, who cannot be left alone, right? So someone always has to be home with the dog because the dog cannot function if left alone. Um, sometimes they can't really be crated. But likewise, they can't be left loose in your house because they'll they'll find mischief in the house as well. So, um, w- really, having some strategically uh, placed foster homes to help do all of that heavy lifting prior to the dog going into someone's home is really important and difficult to come by. So, first, I will say, if you are a family, if you are an individual who has a heart for these dogs that really truly are have been traumatized and have distress becoming a specialized therapeutic foster home and getting trained up getting good support from a local positive reinforcement based trainer who can do behavior mod and teach you how to do it is a beautiful gift to the shelters in your community because suddenly we're going to take this dog who you know has had a lot of struggle and we're going to really prepare them well to transition into a home where that dog is going to be successful. That's going to get you further faster than placing this dog, having it come back, placing the dog, having it come back. Often I see in those situations, the rescue is blaming the adopter. And that absolutely yes, enrages that me. Me too. Me too. Because these people are trying so
1: hard. Hard to make it work with a dog that they have no idea. Because everything, their experience when they were a kid as a dog, or the one dog they had before this, and then they decided they're going to adopt a dog that's had a really difficult time because I saw it on the news lately, they're completely unprepared. They are trying their best, that they're absolutely heartbroken about what is going on. Yes. And when they finally make the decision to return the dog to the shelter, this is not an easy decision. This is not a flip. Flip no, and think, oh, And they know they're going to be done. Yeah. And it's usually, I find that it's months in the making. It these is. people have lived with a situation that has been nearly unbearable for months and they are in tears and they are desperate. And yeah. and they get to the shelter and they're trying everything they can do not to cry. And then the shelter talks about how cold they are. And it, it me
0: too, it just enrages right. me they because just, these people, yeah, it's so, so hard. So I will tell you something I've come across a bunch in the last couple of months. And it, Oh, it makes me very angry. Um, that when someone is out looking for a dog, they are informed that, that this dog is on the going to be on a list. And that puts an incredible amount of pressure on that perspective adoptive family in a perfect world ideally whoever that individual says that to should pivot on their heel and leave right but what happens if they're they're at the shelter
1: with their kids and some worker says this is on me and the and and little Joey says mommy what does that mean right and the it shelter is, worker it says it is an emotional
0: means- blackmail that is completely inappropriate? Totally inappropriate. Because right? for one is, is
1: is that buying a dog should be in part an emotional experience. But more than that, there also has to be a rational part of you. So when I tell people when they're going to the shelter to take a look at dogs, don't adopt the first dog you see. You know, there's certain criteria that you're going to have. I want you to make a rational emotional decision. So there should be you should love the dog, but there's also a criteria. You have to step back. I remember one time when um a client invited um me to evaluate a litter of puppies so she could decide which one she was going to buy for her kids. And so we went, she really liked the little girl puppy. And it was or I remember she really liked one of the puppies and it was super cute. I mean, I have to say, this was just a fuzz bucket par excellence. I mean, this was just adorable. However, his litter mate, who was a lot scruffier looking, had sort of odd tufts of hair here and there, was not nearly as cute. But he loved her kids. When, like, he would run over, children! He'd run over and jump in their lap and lick their face, and he'd settle down for a nap. And if they threw a toy, he'd go get it, and he'd come back, and he'd play fetch with them when they gave him a treat he came and he sat in their laps to eat the treat. I mean, he was like the quintessential perfect puppy for a kid and for her two children. I mean, I loved, Emma and I were just ecstatic about this dog. And we kept saying, you must, if you're going to choose one, this is the one. The one she really liked, it was super cute. Kind of looked at the kids, walked away. When they petted him, tolerated it, walked away. When they gave it a toy, he took the toy, walked away. When they took a treat, he took it, walked away. I'm like, don't get this puppy. This is not a puppy that is telling me it loves your kids. This one, this scruffy, odd-looking thing, I adore it. And temperament trumps looks every single time. Well, she just couldn't get over it, so she didn't get either one of them. She ended up getting another dog. And and the dog she got was was fine but he wasn't the one. Emma and I were begging her to take this dog. So that's what I mean. You have to have an emotional attachment. I understand that. But you also have to take that rational approach of saying, how does this dog fit into my family? And that puppy would, I would have put that puppy in any family on the planet. He was such a good dog. And so I think that that you can't just go in with the, we're going to get a dog today. I think you have to go in with a little bit more, more criteria than that. But it's really hard if somebody then says to you, well, this dog only has until, you know, whenever it's on the the to-do list so to speak, then you have not then you've taken away that person's ability to make that rational decision and that's just not fair.
0: No, it's it's not fair and it it really is emotional blackmail. It's it's awful, right? Because many times I have heard from the family this is not a dog we normally would have chosen except that this is what was sent to us. And so once we knew that, then we couldn't we weren't free to just walk away, right? Because now it's being placed on it that it's our responsibility to save this dog and that's just simply it's unkind and it's unfair uh, yes,
1: and i, I get it like both.
0: compassion fatigue is a real thing and i have in times of burnout said things i ought not have said and and wish i could have taken it back but again having people make decisions with that kind of emotional gunk attached to it is it's really unfair and it can cause a lot of issues for the family as well as that dog right right not every, not every dog should be saved
1: yeah no i i'm right there with you that's why i i don't boy this is going to be a controversial statement i believe in low-kill shelters because there are some dogs that are just not adoptable they just simply are not going to function in families and so you put them in a no-kill shelter, so you put them in a pen to spend the rest of their lives with only 20 minutes of human contact a day if they're lucky. What kind of a quality of life are you giving to those dogs who are not adoptable? So, I mean, that's a whole nother issue. Right. But
0: and that's just, the thing. If you're going to be a no-kill shelter, truly, if you're going to be a no-kill shelter or rescue, you cannot do public intake. You need to have criteria for what animals are healthy and adoptable that can come into your system. Not, we'll take anything, and then no matter what the history is, no matter what behaviors this dog exhibits, we're just going to outsource unaliving to this new family who had didn't see it coming. Right. And I've been the recipient of that. Yes. I, I I had a dog yes. adopted out to me from a local shelter. Um, and man, they saw a dog trainer coming a mile a minute. You know, they were like a mile away. They were like, ooh, we have got the dog for you. It was a nine month old puppy that had been placed in seven homes before he came to us. And with right. good and what. what...
1: Yes. I was going to say, if you have a repeat returner, you don't just say, oh, it wasn't the right family and stick it back up for adoption. You have to take a step back and go, hold on a second here. Why is this dog coming back seven times? There's got to be something about this dog that is not compatible with family life. And what is it? And can we fix it? Then the problem is, of course, is that if the family takes the dog, right, that this is maybe not the one, but they feel guilty, and so they take a dog, and the dog doesn't work out, and they decide to, they either, they either have to return it to the shelter or whatever, how awful are they going to feel? I mean, their guilt is just going to be almost incomprehensible, and this sense of failure, like, I failed this dog, and so now, or... They're not going to, they're not going to do it. They're going to keep the dog and they're going to spend thousands and thousands of dollars well,
0: on trying they're, to fix it. Or they're going to live, live a really small life because that's yeah. what the dog requires. Right. I mean, I have and had I've done couples, that. I've had couples who are living with a dog that they can't start a family while that dog is still residing with them. And they love the dog, right? So they're not willing to unalive the dog um, in order to start a family, but they literally are making decisions about whether or not they go on vacation, whether or not they have people over to their home, um, the ages of the people that come to their home. Like all of it because the dog that they adopted had spectacularly special needs. And they do take their commitment seriously, but to not be able to start a family yeah, because they're, they're... you have a dog who's that unstable. Um, and again, really dedicated owners who do spectacular amounts of work to help a dog live as big a life as he can live. But that doesn't, it, it ought not have been the situation. Like I grieve for that. Right. Right. I'm an, I'm an old woman. I can live my world small and I'm okay with that. Right. I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be having a baby anytime soon. So, um, I can choose to live with and do some pretty special needs kids, right? Some of these dogs that live with us are very special and not in the fun way always. That being said, none of them deserve to lose their lives over the behaviors that they exhibit. So Christopher and I are willing to adjust our world to to make it work. That's part of what, you know, he and I signed up for. I look forward to a time when I just have a normal flipping dog that when I go on vacation, I can have a regular pet sitter and I don't have to worry or I can have a a regular boarding kennel that we utilize where the dog is spoiled rotten while he's there Uh, instead of, you know, having to train up staff to be able to allow us to be gone for a Saturday afternoon. Right.
1: And I, I, we had a dog like that. Emma's first dog Molly was um, a, a, a challenge and our life was all built around managing Molly. The entire, our entire life was built around managing Molly And, you know, it it ended up Molly, um, had some dog, some dog aggression. She ended up killing our neighbor's golden retriever and we had to euthanize Molly. And the thing that I learned and, and Emma was really brave about the whole thing. And, um, we, we kind of knew we were going. And I, when I explained to Emma, the, the consequences, you know, that Molly would have to wear a muzzle at all times. She could never be walked except, you know, on a leash. She could never go out and just run around the yard um, because we we just couldn't trust her. And Emma made the decision that she just couldn't let her dog live in that limited of a world and that she knew that that Molly had taken somebody else's dog and that the dog needed to be euthanized. She was very brave about the whole thing, held her dog why they put her down. Anyway, the thing that, that, that got me is when we got home and I realized we didn't have to put up the double gate system anymore. And we didn't have to have Molly in the room behind the gate. And we didn't have to have our guests come in and sit down and not even look at the dog. And it just, this sense of things getting back to normal And I hadn't realized in some ways how much we had wrenched our lives around managing Molly until we didn't have to do it anymore. And so when I've had to counsel clients whose dogs are in a situation where humane euthanasia might be the best answer to the particular problems that they're facing, it's not something that I think either one of us relish or have to do or want to do, but sometimes that is the counsel that we must give. I try to tell people that, you know, when you feel like you've got your life back, try not to feel guilty about that. That might actually be an indication that the decision you made was truly the right one. And it's a terrible, awful, difficult decision to have to make, and not one that comes to Trainers easily to have to discuss this with clients. It doesn't come easily to clients. It's certainly a situation that generally just like rehoming, requires usually ends up being months, if not years of consideration about this. But especially if you feel like you're sitting on a dangerous dog, um, one who has delivered some very, very serious bites, um, you might not have
0: a whole lot of options. Even a dog with lovely bite inhibition, right um that accidentally gets put in a situation where they defensively bite not because anyone was intentionally being a jerk but because the dog has pretty spectacular sensitivities that we don't know about yet cuz it's a new dog the foster home didn't really share information or test information to see where the dog is so we have new adopters and the dog levels a bite well now suddenly that family is put in a situation that is awful, right? They're not sure the dog is a great fit for their family, but they have an ethical and moral obligation to let any potential adopter know that a, a, even a level one bite occurred. There was no damage. It was just contact, um, which by the way, is an inherently safe dog which sounds crazy to people because but they're like, perfect. no, the dog bit. And I'm like, right. So this is like a human losing their temper, but not doing any damage, right? The, if the dog wanted to do damage, could, chose not to, right? So it is a defensive, right. I need more space bite. It is not aggression. The dog is not trying to hurt someone. The dog is just trying to get its needs met. But now you can't return the dog to the rescue because they're going to be unalive, right? It's going to be very different. The dog's not going to go into some other rescuer shelter. That's not appropriate. They can't take on the liability. And the average family is going to really play the dickens trying to come up with another family that's willing to take that dog. Because and this is not the only issue this dog had. Right? So Right, it's rarely a single issue
1: thing. Usually, what I find is dogs because they have a, they have a, they have a, a problem that is going to be manifested in a variety of ways. And so we may start a little bit of defensive growling and then we get punished. And so we go to biting and then maybe we do some resource guarding. Maybe we do some fear barking. Maybe there's going to be multiple. Generally, I find that there's multiple issues because of an underlying problem and it manifests itself in a variety of ways.
0: And so I'll use Dovey as an example. He was neutered and had a gastropexy last Thursday and the injectable sedative that they use for pre-med burns. Now, this is a dog that we have seen zero aggression from. Like, it doesn't matter what we're doing. Other dogs can really yell at him and give him a correction. He he never, ever comes forward. Well, that injection hurt enough that he was barking and snapping in the air threatening because it hurt right fortunately the veterinarian who is administering the med understood I understood but this is a dog who we have seen zero aggression from so to all of a sudden have this response it just came out of the blue right and does not tell me like oh we have an aggressive dog no it tells me I'm gonna have to do some counter conditioning for some vet work because he now, has had a negative experience that hurt and he was threatening that he needed to defend himself. So I'm going to have some work to do on the other end of that. Um but doesn't make him a bad dog. Like the vet warned me that this medication can really burn.
1: Right. And this is this also takes me to when somebody calls me and says, "I have a behavior problem. You know, my dog is 6 and he has just started to get you know, cranky or grumbly, or he snapped at somebody. One of my first things I insist on is a full medical evaluation, especially for pain, because pain can make you do all kinds of things. And so it's really important to understand if there's an underlying organic cause for this apparent new aggression. And so that, especially with, with older dogs and something new, I always say, let's, let's take a look because we need to address husbandry issues as well, because there could be something going on. The, um, the other one though, is that just sort of brings home how long people live with this. I've had people call and tell me that their dog has, um, started to, the dog bit a neighbor and they've already, they, and I'm like, well, how old is a dog? Well, he's nine. Um, is this the first bite? Well, no, we've shown some aggression in the past, and but it never got to be this bad. Goes to show how long people will put up with an issue with their dog, thinking we'll just have to, we either have to live with it or we'll carefully manage the dog or, you know, Whatever. And it just goes to show that that people love their dogs enough that they will put up with stuff like this for a very long time without even realizing that perhaps this is something that um, they shouldn't have to put up with, or that there's something we can do something about it, or it, it will escalate to the point where you now have a dog who has already shown a disposition towards being to to growling and air snapping and now we've added in pain so we've moved to the next level so i think that one of the things that would also encourage people is if your dog is showing things like growling and snarling or freezing or running away or tucking their tails or showing fear get yourself to a trainer because the earlier you address the problem the more likely you will be to have a successful result The longer you let this go on, it becomes a practiced and learned behavior. So it's now not just an instinctive response, but a learned response to a particular stimuli, the more difficult it's going to be to modify this behavior. So I would suggest that I'm going to put a a link to a blog I wrote called This Is Not the Dog I Wanted, which talks about some of the signs that you should be aware of when you are looking at a dog that might signal you need to see somebody. Because I think people think, oh, well, this is just a dog. Well, you know what? Another dog in that situation wouldn't do that. So if we're showing behaviors that make you go, oh, ooh, ow, emotionally or, or physically, then those things need to be addressed and sooner. Because the other thing that I think people don't understand is when you have a dog that has special needs like this, any dog will grow into aggression and not out of it. And so the longer you delay or the more pressure you put on the dog to be something they can't be, or you try, you know, certain things that may that somebody tell uncle Joe tells you to do. Um, you might be pushing the dog in a direction you don't want it to go. So remember the dogs tend to grow into
0: behaviors and not out of them. Well,
1: so it's just like
0: humans, like we all do what works. So. Um... You know, the, the dog who learns that growling and snapping gets the person to leave them alone and not do the unpleasant toenail cutting, right? That dog is likely to escalate if we're not actively working to condition the dog relaxing, building the relationship in a different way, and really giving the dog more agency. There are lots of ways to get toenails cut. Right. It doesn't have to be a knockdown, drag out fight, nor should it be right. That's basic husbandry. So what I would say is the more information. So let's say you're a family who's thinking about, again, you have a dog shaped hole in your heart, in your family, and you want to add a dog to the household. Um, Whether you're going to a breeder or a rescue or a shelter, I want you to be picky. I want you to have clear criteria in your mind and maybe even write it down as a family of what the perfect prince or princess charming coming into your home would be. And I promise you, it has little to do with whether or not the dog sheds. It has very little to do with whether the dog has brown spots or black spots. It does have to do with how your family functions in the world so if you're a very social family that lots of kids are in and out lots of people are in and out we have lots of activity then we have to go and find a dog that and by the way you're not necessarily going to know from a puppy a dog that's going to be really comfortable with that kind of social interaction if you're a household that goes hiking. And camping, having a dog who's comfortable and bonded to people enough that it's not as likely to wander off is a big deal, right? A dog with high prey drive, that's going to be really difficult when you're trying to hike the Appalachian Trail, right? You're going to have a dog who's trying to pull you up, down, and sideways on the that's mountain. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. Because there be squirrels everywhere, right? So, Finding a trainer, so for example, Sid Happens, we offer this as a free service, which is probably really dumb because then they never need training. But I do a matching program where I help a family learn how to read between the lines on the assessments and figure out what dogs are going to be a potential good fit and then really triaging their list and then saying, okay, here are three dogs for you to go look at figure out what you think from those three and understand that it may be that none of those three are the right fit. Very few of us married the first person we dated and lived happily ever after. Right. This is it's a right, really, really a good thing that I didn't marry the first person I ever dated. So, right. So, so I, I mean, I, I don't know that I had a picture in my head of what Christopher was supposed to look like, but I did recognize the traits that I wanted in a partner, right? And Christopher has those traits, right? He has those characteristics. His values and integrity are amazing. And he's a good caretaker. And he's very, um, he's wicked smart and very funny and very empathetic, right? So I had all these lists of criteria, characteristics that I was looking for in a partner, well surely if I'm going to add a dog to my life ideally also I would have a list of characteristics that are important to my my family and to functioning in right. our household
1: because this is not for a day hopefully this is going to be for 10 years and well, so I'm... you need to be serious about how the criteria that you need in a dog because you're looking at a fairly long-term relationship. I liked what you said about not, you know, the first three dogs. I had a, a some clients, um, and they, turns out we, their dog had to be euthanized for biting. And they wanted another dog. It took us three years to find them the right dog. But they were willing to be patient and work with me and find the dog that and and they they added Rudy to their life and it has been a joy since the day Rudy walked into their house because they were willing to wait for the dog that fit
0: their lifestyle we want it to fit in right so if i do my job well for these matching clients then the dog seamlessly basically moves into their household and they don't need a trainer and that's okay right um and maybe that's a bad business proposition but that's what i always say that i have this terrible business model that i wanted i want you to not need me right and And, that's right so like so sometimes someone will call me and and they'll talk about like okay I really want a blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, what is it about a blah, blah, blah. That makes you think that that's what you want. And the behavior and temperament criteria that they describe are no longer in that breed. They're in a different breed. Right. Um, And people are like, what do you mean? That's not in X, Y, Z breed anymore. And I'm like, they've bred that out of the lines. Like it's, it's very difficult to find. Now, that temperament, that set of criteria is actually in this other breed. And so what's more important, the shape of the silhouette of the dog or the characteristics that you're in love with, right? In which case, I'm, I'm typically going to follow the characteristics. I'm not going to follow um, the shape of the dog, right? Right, because temperament trumps looks every single time and twice on Sundays. Right. It doesn't matter how handsome Christopher is if he's a jerk, which he's not right. He's lovely. So, uh, so it's, it's, and in the average life, how many dogs do we have? Right. Um, I mean, arguably dog trainers have a lot of dogs in their lives, (laughs) right? But But, I mean, I'm, I'm turning 50, I'm 54 today. And So how many more dogs am I likely to have in my life? And so I want to be choosy about those. And for a whole host of reasons, one, I want to be able to feed them exceedingly well, right? Which is expensive. There's just no way around it. Two, I want to be able to do the, I want a stable dog that I can do training with, um, for more of our life together and less of a rehab project. Right. Um, I, I know oh, myself I well, well enough to know I do not want to do a bunch of grooming. Like I, I am not going to do the grooming. I'm just, I'm not, it's not going to happen. I don't enjoy it. I don't like it. I've had dogs that needed to go to the groomers in the past. I hated it. I didn't like it. Right. So that's going to change my criteria. Um, um, I also, you know, I mean I had to buy a car to accommodate the doberman because he didn't fit in the sedan. So, so I am arguably a little more flexible about that than the average family, but I don't know that the average family is going to want to have to buy a different vehicle in order to transport their animal safely. So, you know, the I love the dogs we have now. I wouldn't do anything to to hurt any of them, obviously, or to, you know, unalive them, but I will be choosier in the future because again, like I don't just want the Island of misfit toys. Now, if you are a family, I started to say this earlier, who has a heart for this rehab work, then I would encourage you to start interviewing and talking to trainers who specialize in behavior modification and working with these really special dogs to have talking to veterinarians who are fear-free, who are okay, working with very special needs dogs, getting cooperative care stuff started, getting a game plan planned up and ready to go so that you're prepared when you bring this dog home to do this work, right? to have spaces secu- that the dog can be secured, that we can help that dog really decompress, uh, and and start with new levels of fantastic nutrition, quiet care, not expecting everybody and their brother to come meet this brand new dog who's overwhelmed just by being transitioned from one situation to another. So
1: right, there's there's a there's. I was going to say I, when I was at one of the Midwest Veterinary Conferences, um, one of the the speakers was talking about a shelter. I believe it's in North Carolina. The first thing they do when they get new dogs in is they give them their own their own run, their own kennel, their own blanket, and they like leave them alone. They put them in a quiet, stable environment, very little human interaction. They allow the dogs. And, you know, well, you know, there's food and stuff, but they can go out. But what what they're trying to do is have the dog learn to feel safe in the environment. And as the dog sort of warms up and becomes more outward, then they start to slowly increase human interaction with the dog. But one of the first things they do is make the dog feel safe. And I think that that's incredibly important. And apparently they have a very good... Um, recovery rate with their dogs and a very good adoption rate, because one of the things they do is they take care of allowing the dog to feel safe first. And I think that's one of the things that we need to think about is, does my dog feel safe? And if it does, you know, and, and, and allowing the dog to, like, there are times, like, I don't know where Clementine is. I think she's downstairs sleeping on the new bed, you know? So I didn't insist that Clementine come up here, Although Zuzus up here, you know it's allow them to have the
0: space they need to compose themselves. Yes. And I think it's important to recognize that there are dogs who will never feel safe. You're absolutely right on that one. Absolutely. They just won't. They can't. Right? And that that is very Very real suffering. Yes, it is. And if they can't feel safe, how
1: are they going to project that fear? What's the behavior that we're going to see that says, I don't feel safe? Because if they don't feel safe, then they may not be a safe dog to have because they're going to do what it takes to defend themselves or to keep themselves in what level of safety they have. So those are dogs that need to be handled, I think, with a great deal of care. And, you know, they're going to have a lot of special needs.
0: Yeah, so I would be interested. People who have, so I have pulled a dog from a hoarding situation. I don't think I would ever do it again. Um, And he had a really good outcome for the time. Uh, But I did end up adopting a second dog that was very stable to help him be successful uh and i he had very limited moments of truly being happy like they i you know there were very few situations where he was joyful uh now that was 30 plus years ago and i know more things now that maybe would change that um but Again, I don't I don't know many people who've pulled a dog from a hoarding situation or from a puppy mill situation who would sign up to do that again. I don't know a lot of people who would pull a dog from a laboratory setting and try to rehab that dog who are going to sign up to do that again. When those are often the families who would potentially be best suited To do that work because they successfully navigated it. So I'm not saying not to advocate for the dogs. I I want dogs to have really great lives, but I want families to have really great lives too. So understand as you're doing your research about finding a dog for your family, it, I'm seeing, I am seeing in my practice more and more purebred dogs. And fewer and fewer shelter dogs, right? And I don't think that that's terrible. I Most of those families I've worked with previously, they went to a shelter and they ended up with a dog who really majorly changed their lives. And so they wanted more reliably typical, smaller standard deviation of behavior. And so they went and got something purebred. Right. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to shame them over that. I have purebred and mixed breed dogs in my house and none of the dogs currently in my house. Did I go to a breeder for, they all are either rescues or owner surrenders to our household. Well, what I
1: would say is there, there tends to be, and I think a lot of people tend to that there's no no one right way to get a dog. There are many wrong ways to get a dog, but there's no one right way to get a dog. And so if you choose to go to a breeder or um, whether you go to shelter, there's no right or wrong here. It's just where are you likely to find the dog that's going to best fit into your family and really become your forever dog? Or give them the forever home, and so I I feel as though um, it's time for us to stop saying the only way to get a dog is to adopt a shelter dog because I think then that can set some people up for a real disaster and also set them up so that the dog that they get, if it doesn't work out, they don't get another dog and that's really sad too. So I think it's important to remember there's more than one way. To get a dog. So, Tina, you want to summarize what we've talked
0: about today? I guess I would just say: endeavor not to be inappropriately moved by the sob story, right? To expect more of the who, whatever organization or individual is presenting a dog to you for adoption, whether it's breeder, shelter, rescue, you want a lot of data, as much as you can get about. Who this dog is, uh, what their history has been. Uh, sadly, I'm going to tell you when you talk to a rescue, you need to ask about have there been any reported bites, because we are seeing rescues who taken a dog that has seriously injured someone and spin them around and place them for adoption again. Um, I would ask if the dog has been to trainers before that, that the rescue or the shelter is the individual is knowledgeable about. Um, and what, if so, what methodology methodologies were used? Uh, I, again, I'm seeing rescues consistently that come in with an aggression issue and are farmed out to a shock collar trainer and the dogs are unstable going into that next home and it's not disclosed to that family. Uh, line up a trainer ahead of time to help you evaluate what a great match for your family would be and what characteristics you're looking for in a dog. And it's not necessarily just about how tall they are and whether or not they shed. It's also about, um, it's also about characteristics such as, is my dog super social with children or aloof with children?
1: Right. Well, one of the things I was going to say is is I put together a pamphlet called How To and in it is how to choose a breeder, how to choose a shelter, how to choose a dog, how to choose a trainer. So we will put that pamphlet, the link to it on the website. Um so people might find that to be be handy as well as uh, a couple of other uh blogs and podcasts that we've done that related to this subject. So the bottom line is too is if you, if you don't no, get help. Call a positive reinforcement trainer and ask them if they can help you to determine and to find a dog that's going to fit into your lifestyle and your family's lifestyle. So with that, thank you, Tina, for another great broadcast. And we'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.